Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, I hope that you've been enjoying the journey through Romans. Is it starting to make a little sense to you? Uh, It is an intimidating book theologically, but I think we can journey through it together and make some sense of it. It's kind of like walking up uh, a mountain of grace, and we're getting higher and higher, and the view's getting even better and better. And I think you'll appreciate the view from today's discussion on mostly chapter 8 and eternal security, the issue of eternal security. I know that this is a controversial issue around the world. It's so controversial, some people are vehemently against it. They think they're derogatorily calling it once saved, always saved, but I'll own up to that uh, title because I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. And I believe the scriptures teach that as we'll show. But the default position around the world seems to be that you can lose your salvation. And what that tells me is that these who believe that don't have a full grasp and clear understanding of what grace is and what it means to be saved by grace and what it means to be kept saved by grace. And so the doctrine of eternal security simply says if you can't be saved by anything that you do, you can't lose that salvation by anything that you do. We're saved by grace, we're kept saved by grace. And it's, it's the objective fact that God has given us eternal life and it is ours forever. But it's very controversial everywhere I go. But when people understand the argument of Romans and the theology of Romans, they often will see the light, I think. I've seen it. But I was teaching in Ukraine not a couple year and a half ago now, I said, the other day, something like that, two years, I forget. And I was told there, I was teaching in an eastern town, which I think is now occupied by the Russians. I was teaching missions and evangelism, but talking about eternal security, because I always managed to work that in. It's part of the gospel, I think, really. And I was told, you know, this is one of the few churches in Ukraine where you would even be able to talk about that. If you were to go to the capital city of Kiev, they wouldn't even let you... There's no church that would invite you to talk about that. They call it the, that Western doctrine of immorality, that doctrine that promotes sin. One time in Romania, I was speaking at a large conference with about 400 people present, and I was going through the Book of Romans like I have with you. And the people were tracking with me. I could tell. I got to Romans 8 and started talking about eternal security, and the elders Seating on the side, seated on the side, got up and started arguing with the translator, not me, thankfully. And thankfully, the translator didn't tell me everything they were saying, but they were mad. They were mad that I was teaching eternal security. Well, you know, they say you got to pick the hills you're going to die on, pick your battles. And this mountain of grace that leads us to eternal security is one that I'm willing to die on because it's essential to the gospel itself. So let's talk about it. 
We've been talking through chapter 8, which talks, tells us how to, we can have a victorious Christian life by letting the life of Christ live through us, His resurrection life live through us, and if we let the Spirit control our minds, we can live a godly life. It tells us that the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. And now we come to a section of Romans chapter 8, and I think the real discussion begins in verse 28. Let's see where we have, what we have here. So we're moving from a discussion of grace and sanctification to grace and our security. So how far does grace go? Well, we've read in chapter 5 that where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And that leads to the objection that everyone who opposes eternal security seems to uh, pipe up with, which is, does that mean that we can go on sinning? We're not under the law. We have no restrictions. We're under grace, etc. And Paul answers that there, absolutely not. And then he tells us how we are sanctified not by trying harder, but by trusting more. And that the Christian life is based on what God has done for us. That's grace. Just like salvation is also based on grace. So this controversy about eternal security, I want to take a little introductory time to talk about why is it that it's so controversial, why I think it's so controversial, and why some people don't believe in eternal security. And the first reason we've already mentioned is that they say it encourages sin. Even though Paul answers that very clearly in chapter 6. And then some people say, well, it wouldn't be fair. Eternal security is not fair because you have two people, two Christians, and one lives a godly life and is faithful all of his life, and he goes to heaven. The other is a believer who's believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, but lives a carnal life, a sinful life, and he also goes to heaven. That's just not fair, they would argue. And then there are those who like to point to different Bible verses that say, well, you can lose your salvation. What about this verse? What about this verse? You've fallen from grace. Uh, I mean, there's so many different verses they would point to. If you continue, etc. And what I found that is, is convenient to do or most helpful to do is not to answer verse for verse, like tit for tat, but instead to help them to see different categories where those verses would fit in. So even with those verses, you can put them into some categories, like, for example, the verses that speak about God's discipline. Hebrews 12 says that God chastises those whom he loves. There are times when God spanks us because, like a good parent, he doesn't let his children run wild. And so he will discipline us. And some of those verses, I think, are misinterpreted to mean that God will send us to hell. How do you know when God's spanking you? Somebody asked me the other day. You just know. It's the best I can do with it. Bad things do happen to good people, and it may not be God's discipline. But if it's God's discipline, I think you will know. And if you're not sure, ask God about it, and I think he will let you know. So there are those who say that it could be, uh, uh, they then look at some verses about losing rewards and they say that's losing salvation. 
They might, may point to a verse like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where the, the fire burns up the wood, hay, and straw or uh, John chapter 15, especially verse 6, I think it is, that talks about the branches that are burned and, they, and then the book of Hebrews with all the warning passages that have the mention of fire uh, only a couple times. But they say that that points to the threat of hell or losing salvation. But I think that they don't understand this category of eternal rewards. And that's why this category of eternal rewards in the judgment seat of Christ is such an important teaching in the church. It shows us that we as Christians are responsible to live a godly life, and there are consequences if we don't. But the consequence is not that we lose our salvation, it's that we lose our reward. After all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about those whose works are burned up, but also the gold, silver, and precious stones that pass through the fire. But speaking of the ones whose works are burned up, it says, He will be saved, yet so as through fire. He will be saved, but so as through fire. I picture a man running out of his house in the middle of the night. His house is on fire, and he's in his undershorts. That's all he's got. He made it, though. He's saved. There's going to be people in heaven smelling like secondhand smoke. Their eyes, eyebrows are going to be singed. But they made it. And then some of those passages could speak of physical death, as was already mentioned by Jeff, that there are those who abuse the Lord's Supper, and because of that, some of them were ill, and some of them have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death. God took good believers who just abused the Lord's Supper to death, maybe like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And there is a sin unto death. James 5, 1 John 5. So we have those categories, and I think if people understood those categories, it would answer a lot of the objections about these different verses. Why do some people believe in eternal security? In a word, it's grace. If we understand that grace is totally free, unconditional, and unmerited, then how can we go back to a system where we must say we have to do certain things or not do certain things in order to deserve our eternal salvation? So in a word, it's grace. Grace teaches us not to sin. And that's what we saw in Romans chapter 6. He even says that there are consequences there when we do sin. And then Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14 says, The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live a righteous and godly life, paraphrase. Teaches us. The word teach there is the word we for training. It's the word from which we get the word pedagogy. We don't learn and then the grace of God appears. The grace of God appears and then it teaches. Jesus catches his fish and then he cleans them. He doesn't clean fish before he catches them. So grace captures us and cleans us up. That's what Titus 2, 11 through 14 is saying. We have a new power. We have a new uh, motivation now. And that motivation, I think, really comes out in chapter 12, which we're going to get to and talk about. But it motivates us to live for, for God. Living the Christian life, a godly Christian life, is the way we say thank you to God for all that he's done for us. The Christian life should be a big thank you to God. And grace is never fair. That answers the objection that grace is unfair. What about the sinner who lives a Christian who lives a carnal, sinful life and yet goes to heaven? It's just not fair. I remember someone came to me in my church and he said, my father's dying and I've been trying to witness to him 
And he says, you know, I've done, I've ignored God all of my life. His father said, I've ignored God all my life and done what I wanted to. I've lived a sinful life. It wouldn't be fair for me now on my deathbed to ask God to forgive me. And I said, tell him about the thief on the cross, right? Was it fair for Jesus to say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise when this man had lived whatever kind of life he did to deserve death, the worst kind of death the Romans could meter out, death on a cross. And then grace covers all of our sin. As we've been saying in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. We cannot out-sin God's grace. So how much sin is covered? Well, I don't know that there are categories of sin. Sin is sin. David's sin was covered. He committed adultery and murder. I don't know that we've done much worse than that. And then another thing to keep in mind is grace is God's consistent attitude towards all men. He is called the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. He's always had that attitude of grace towards all men. I don't think that God in his love wants to make salvation hard to have initially. And nor does he want it ever to make it hard to keep. He's a God of all grace. He really does want us to be saved. Unfortunately, the way the gospel is presented many times today, and people have written books like Hard to Believe, it's hard to believe. It almost makes it impossible for a child to become a Christian the way they say you have to do certain things and make certain commitments and understand so much theology to be saved. It's a shameful thing to make the gospel hard and difficult when God wants all men to be saved and has made it as simple as possible. Notice I didn't say easy. It's not easy to believe necessarily, but it's always simple to believe. There's a difference, which if you want to know, you'll ask me a question and I'll answer it later. But Grace teaches us not to sin. It motivates us. It's never fair. It covers our sin. It's God's attitude towards mankind from the very beginning. And he has talked for now almost eight chapters about what grace has done for us as individuals and how it works in our lives as sinners to save us. And then he's going to talk later about how it's working in the Gentiles and Jews in his plan for the world. But we want to pause now and look about what grace teaches about eternal security beginning in verse 28 of chapter 8. And this is this well-known verse that you know so well, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Actually, we should never disconnect verse 28 from verse 29 and 30, so I'm going to read on here. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now I know that we like to use verse 28 as a verse of comfort, that no matter what happens to us in our lives, God will use it together for good and make all things work out for good. And I absolutely believe that can be used in that way. But I think when we connect it to these other verses, what it's really telling us is that God will accomplish his purpose for you and for me, and nothing will stop that purpose. And that's what verses 29 
and 30 are showing us, that there is a chain. That chain starts with his foreknowledge, which I think God not just knew who would believe, but God, there's some determination involved in that. For God to know something is for it to be, and for it to be is for God to know. It gets complicated and philosophical there. But he predestined us, what? It doesn't say to salvation, but to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word predestined here is applying to us as believers who he has purposed to be in the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's his purpose for you and for me. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren, the preeminent one. Moreover, whom he predestined, uh, these he also called. Here's the chain. Sometimes theologians call this the golden chain. God's uh, uh, pre-temporal, pre-time, predestination, and those he predestines, uh, a difficult doctrine in itself and I know controversial. These he called or invites to salvation, and those he calls he justifies, and those he justifies he glorifies. So we have a chain here beginning from our perspective before time until the end of our lives when we go to be with him or he comes to be with us and we are glorified. But notice the important observation about this is not necessarily what we can get into all kinds of rabbit trails about what it means to be predestined. But the important thing here is that God accomplishes his purpose and loses none in the process. Everyone he justifies, he glorifies. You notice that there is an important step missing there in between justification and glorification. What is that? What? What? Sanctification, yeah. And I think perhaps the reason our sanctification is not guaranteed is because it involves our performance and our cooperation with God. We're justified totally by His grace, glorified totally by His grace. Sanctification, different for each person, depending on how we cooperate with God. It is by grace, but it does depend on our cooperation. So we have this chain here telling us that God is going to accomplish what He purposes in us. And it, in all the circumstances, no matter what's going on, it will work together for good. So, his purpose for us cannot be broken, is what we want to say here. Right? I'm sorry, we need to back up a slide or two. That's the conclusion. I'm sorry, here we go. God's favor towards us cannot be denied, verses 31 and 32. Paul's marching us up that mountain of grace, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? Now, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, Paul's like saying, well, this is, this is such tremendous truth. How, how should we respond? If God is for us, who can be against us? God plus one is a winning team. So who can come against that combination? If he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, won't he give us everything freely to accomplish the purpose he intends for us? You see, the argument goes from the greater to the lesser. If God gives us the greatest thing, his son, isn't he going to give us every other little thing that we need to get to where he wants us to be glorified and made fully in Christ's image? 
You see, when I was in the United States, I was told that the ministry here would pay for our tickets to fly to New Zealand. And so they were paid for. All we had to do was get on the plane. And by the way, we didn't, they didn't tell us we had to bring our sneakers to get out and push. They never asked us to flap. They just said, sit back and enjoy your flight. It was paid for. It was done. And that was a lot of money to fly two people. Thank you so much to New Zealand. And by the way, that might merit your financial support to this ministry. But if the ministry is going to pay for us that large price to come here, wouldn't we expect someone to meet us at the airport? Well, of course. And so Tori and Sue were there at 5.30 in the morning to wait for us. We didn't get there till midnight, but they were there at 5.30 in the morning. Didn't get the message. The flight had been delayed three times. <laughs> Sorry. God bless you. And didn't he provide transportation to our next stop? But our next stop, of course, because his, he had a purpose in mind. The ministry had a purpose in mind for us, and that purpose, they weren't going to give us the large gift unless they would also give us everything else it took to accomplish that purpose. Jesus gave his son, and he would waste the death of his son if he didn't give us everything else we needed to complete his purpose for us. And so when we were saved... We were not put on probation to see how we would do on our own. He promised the whole package. Those that he justified, he also glorified. So God's purpose for us cannot be denied. And then in verse 33, he asks another question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We've talked about the term justifies. And how it means declared, in a legal sense, declared righteous before God. And if God, the judge of the universe, declares us righteous in his eyes, who can bring a charge against us that's going to stand against his verdict? The implied answer is there is no one who can do such a thing. Once God declares us Innocent in his eyes, or not guilty in his eyes, or righteous in his eyes, in the eyes of his justice, then we are, we are no longer under a penalty for our crime of sin. We have this wonderful story coming from the United States about O.J. Simpson and how he was accused of murdering his wife. Sorry that you had to hear about that if you remember some years ago. And so it went into a long, long involved trial with tremendous media coverage. And the bottom line was all the evidence pointed to him murdering his wife, but he was acquitted of the crime. Later, he was sued civilly, and they won the civil suit against him. But in the criminal court of law, he was acquitted, which meant in America, which we have a, law, a, a principle called no double jeopardy, he could not be charged again for that crime. He turns around and he writes a book, If I Did It where he describes in detail how he probably did it. But even with that as evidence, he could not be accused again of that same crime because he had been justified in the eyes of the law once and for all.
And then in verse 34, Christ's intercession for us cannot be reversed. He says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. So who can condemn us? Jesus is our intercessor. And that is a word from the courtroom also, meaning our defense lawyer. Jesus is defending us before the Father so that when Satan accuses us as he did before God with Job, when Satan accuses us and says, you see what Charlie did? Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father said, uh, Father, I got that covered. That was on me on the cross. Satan can bring no accusation against those who believe in him that will stand up in God's universe of justice because that price has been paid. God has been propitiated, remember, for all of our sins. That's good news, my friends. Christ's intercession for us cannot be effective. And then Christ's love for us cannot be separated from us. Now, in this section, beginning in verse 35, Paul goes into some very eloquent language, searching as deeply and eloquently as he can for anything, anywhere, any person, anyone, anywhere, any power that can separate us from the love of God. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, a rhetorical question, but he's going to answer, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Who can separate us from... Look what he lists, persecution. You think a Christian who's being persecuted, who's being locked in a cell for months at a time, half-starved, and then maybe even killed for his faith, might just think that, God, you don't love me, you've given up on me? A Christian going through a famine who doesn't even have enough food to eat? Do you think he might say, God, didn't you promise to take care of all my needs? Have you given up on me? Someone who's naked, not even enough clothes to wear, or constantly in peril or sword or under the threat of death? Do you think there are Christians like that all over the world today? Today there are more martyrs than any time in history. More Christian martyrs than any time in history. I personally... No people in Myanmar, so I keep track of things going on there. They're bombing Christian villages, killing people. Northern Nigeria, you hear what's going on there? The Muslims and the Fulani tribe killing pastors and Christians. In Sudan as well. I mean, we could go on and on. North Korea is the worst. Afghanistan, second, I think. China's probably rated third. India, certain parts of India. On and on and on, your brothers and sisters are being killed. Do you think that the thought ever crosses their mind, God, have you forgotten about me? And Paul says, nothing, no one will separate us from the love of God. But in, spite of, in contrast to that, he says in verse 37, in all these things, all these difficult times, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just uh, surviving, we're thriving in the midst of persecution because of God's love. Testimony after testimony that comes out of such persecuted peoples is that they've never felt closer to God than when they spent that time in prison or when their life was threatened. You almost want to envy them. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, that about covers it, doesn't it? But he goes on, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. 
any power in this world, any spirit in this world, nor things present, nor things to come. Again, that's a pretty exhaustive time period. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing. As Paul scours the universe and searches it from top to bottom, from east to west, from life to death, looks at the spiritual realm, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And tell me that your eternal salvation is not secure. You're covered by this list. This is the most powerful statement, I think, in the Bible about our eternal security. God has a purpose for us, and he will finish that purpose. He will see us through because of his grace. Because of his grace, we're eternally secure. And you know, we can, we can make this argument for eternal security from so many other parts of the Bible, other passages in the Bible. We can say eternal life it means eternal. My professor, Dr. Ryrie, used to say if eternal life could be lost and it was misnamed. The fact that God cannot lie, Titus 1-2, God said that he would give us eternal life. He cannot lie. God has a double grip on us. Jesus said, I hold you in my hands and I am in my Father's hands. So we have a double grip of grace. We're born spiritually. I can't quite figure out how to be unborn spiritually. We're adopted as sons. How do we get out of that legal arrangement? We're sealed by the Spirit. A seal was a guarantee in those days. In fact, the Scriptures tell us, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, that that seal guarantees our future redemption. That seal can't be broken until God accomplishes where he wants us to be, which is fully redeemed. I, my last grace notes uh, that will be online soon, as soon as I get home, I tell my webmaster to put it on there. I entitled it, What Must I Do to Be Unsaved? It's just a two-page study. I list 22 things that would have to be undone. Briefly, let me go through them. You have to deny the extent of the atonement. Jesus' sin, sin, his atonement, Payment did not cover my sins. You have to reverse God's justification. He's declared you righteous. You'll have to learn how to figure out how to reverse that. You have to refund his redemption. He's purchased you. You'll have to figure out how to give the money back or the payment back. You have to revoke your reconciliation. He's reconciled you to God. Sometimes how you're going to have to figure out how to break that reconciliation again. You'll have to learn how to annul your adoption into his family. You'll have to reject the pardon of forgiveness for all of your sins. You'll have to become unborn again. You'll have to break the Holy Spirit's seal. You'll have to cast out the indwelling Holy Spirit that you're given at salvation. You'll have to dislodge yourself from that union with Christ. Remember, baptized with him, buried with him, risen with him. You'll have to figure out how to undo that union. You have to withdraw from the body of Christ. Extract yourself because you were baptized into his body. You have to be unsanctified. And this is used in the positional sense. He has set us apart. You'll have to figure out how to get unset apart, if that's good New Zealand English. You'll have to alter God's grace to mean less than the Scripture says it means. You'll have to limit God's love to be, be less than what Paul said it is here. 
you'll have to override God's ultimate purpose for you that Paul has just explained is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and nothing will get in the way. You'll have to loosen his divine double grip where Jesus has us and God has him. You'll have to make God a liar who promised us eternal life. You'll have to renounce your heavenly citizenship. You'll have to forfeit your inheritance. You'll have to return to death and darkness. You'll have to revoke all the Old Testament covenants that anticipated our salvation as the seed of Abraham through his seed, Jesus Christ. And you'll have to redact the book of life so that when Jesus or when God opens it, at the great white throne, somehow you get your name in there and you get cast into the lake of fire. I don't know how to edit what God has written. Those are just some of the things you'd have to undo if you want to lose your salvation. You see, I believe that the doctrine of eternal salvation, eternal security, is central to the free grace message. If God saves us freely by His grace, and our grace has nothing to do with our works or our merit, then how can we lose it by something that we do? It's by grace from beginning to end. And if we truly understand grace, I believe we would understand and accept this idea of eternal security. It's a major motivation for godly living because it gives us security so that we don't have to keep looking back wondering if we're saved or if we just lost our salvation. That's a terrible way to live. And you can't grow forward if you're always looking backwards and wondering. So we're working from security, not towards security. And that makes all the difference in your motivation and in your ministry in life. Believe me, I've talked to people, so many people all over the world. They're ministering in fear. They're living in fear day by day. They don't know what's going to happen to them if they fall asleep when, and, and they happen to die in their sleep. One man came up to me a few years ago at a conference I've been speaking at regularly. He said, I just want to thank you because last year you spoke on eternal security and for the first time in my life I've been able to sleep in peace all year. So I want to tell you that, he said. I would go to sleep every night wondering if I died in my sleep, what would happen to me? You, that message changed my whole life and ministry. That could be multiplied dozens of times with dozens of anecdotes and tales that I hear from people around the world when we do our training. Because of grace, we're eternally secure. It's the basis for the assurance of our salvation. You see, eternal security relates to whether or not believers can lose their salvation. Assurance relates to our acceptance or understanding of the objective fact that we are secure. So even though our security may never change, the assurance of that security can change. And so many Christians struggle with this issue of assurance of salvation. I would suppose that there are some in this room who wonder, you think you've believed in Jesus as your Savior, but you're not quite sure if you've really blown it with a sin or whatever. I find there's a number of reasons that people struggle with assurance. It's not the same for every person. Some people have very introspective personalities and they're always wondering, have I really believed? Did I believe the right way? Um, they think with their hearts. And, you know, I've, I have friends like this and I love introspective people because they, they're the ones that write the poetry and do the artwork and see the things I don't see. But I have, actually have two friends who went to Dallas Theological Seminary and paid for a four-year master theology degree 
so that they could find out if they were saved. They're absolutely sure today, no problem. But one of them, I was asking him, I was saying, I said, uh, Brian, you must have an introspective personality. And he said, Charlie, I could draw you a map of my psyche. I said, I don't even know if I have a psyche. <laughs> but he was so introspective, asking every day, you know, did I really believe? And some people are just like that. Some people have, ne have learned never to trust others. They've had too many promises broken. And so they have trouble trusting in a heavenly father who would keep a promise. Sometimes when people have struggled with this idea of assurance of salvation, I have learned to ask a question. Tell me about your father. Because we often project onto our God the traits of our earthly fathers, unfortunately, who are never perfect. I remember talking to one girl as a pastor. She called up and she said, I, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I just keep having doubts. And I said, well, have you gone through the gospel with her? Or do you believe this? Do you believe that? Have you asked Jesus to be your Savior? Yes, yes, I've done that, but I'm not sure. Tell me about your father. Well, he was an alcoholic, and he would beat us all the time. If he came home from work and the house wasn't perfectly clean, he would beat us. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and he'd be holding me up by the arm, and I'd wake up with him beating me. It immediately became apparent to me why someone would doubt a heavenly father. Oh, there's so many other reasons. Some people get all wrapped up in sin, and sin is like throwing sand in an engine. It just messes us up spiritually. Some people get misled into other theologies that really don't understand grace clearly. They go down different theological paths. They are pushed theologically instead of led biblically. Maybe they're going through a severe trial and they're thinking they're disillusioned. How could God love me and care for me? How would he let this happen to someone that's supposed to be his child? And they might just come across Bible verses that confuse them, like there are many of them that they could read. But God wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to know. What parent would want their child to doubt whether they are part of the family? Is that a healthy environment for which someone to grow, should grow up in? Of course not. You want a good day? You're my son. I'm so proud of you. The next day, you didn't mow the lawn? I don't know if you're my son. My son would obey me. Could anyone live with that kind of capricious, fickle love, so-called love? No. And so what kind, of environment, what, kind of, what kind of environment is produced by the idea that God would just smite us at any moment for doing something wrong? That's not a healthy environment for Christian growth. You see, eternal security really is foundational to the gospel itself and to the Christian life itself. If you want to be productive, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to live at peace, if you want to have... Uh, uh, security and live with security then understand what Paul is saying here and in other, so many other places in the scriptures I have another friend who ministered in a theological system where you could lose your salvation at any time and then he came to understand grace and he told me he said for 30 years I ministered just out of fear and guilt 
But for the first time, I understand grace, and for the first time, I'm ministering with joy and peace. That's the difference it makes. It makes a difference in how we serve God. The Golden Great Bridge is kind of an icon built in America in 1937 at the cost of $77 million over the San Francisco Bay with its rushing waters and high winds. It was a difficult project to build, a first suspension bridge like that in America. And what they found is that 23 people fell to their deaths building that bridge until someone came up with the idea, let's build a safety net under there so that if someone falls, the net will catch them. And they built it for only $10,000. And guess what? 23 lives were saved because of that net. Well, that's kind of what they were hoping for. But something else happened that they didn't expect. The work proceeded 25% faster. You see, if we understand that God gives us room to grow, He even gives us room to fail, He gives us room to sin, but He'll never kick us out of the family. We can live a prosperous Life. We can serve God with joy and peace and security. Now, not everybody has that security. It's kind of pandemic around the world, I find. And every place I go, even in the best churches, I find there are people who doubt their salvation, and they have reasons for that. I would like to just take a moment to pause and pray with you. And so I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads and give your neighbor privacy by just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. Because perhaps you're here today and you've wondered what would happen if you were to die in your sleep tonight or you feel like you've blown it and you think God might have given up with you. But you understand the gospel now. You understand grace now. And I don't want anyone to leave this room today and live with that doubt. And so you would say today, Jesus, I'm going to believe you that my salvation is by grace and grace alone, not by my works or merit nothing I deserve, and I'm trusting you from this moment forward. And just so that you understand that what I have said is clear, if that is your heart's prayer right now, would you just stick your head up real quick so I can see it and I know that I've been clear with you. Thank you. One, two, yes. Another one, good. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? We've got, you've got a lot of company. Six, seven. Anyone else? Eight. Yeah. Wonderful. Beautiful. You're going to leave today and never doubt God's word again. You're going to be secure forever. And tell someone, tell your pastor, tell your elders, talk to somebody about this and re let them rejoice with you. And Father, I just want to thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us to give us this secure relationship with you that you will never, ever let anything come between us and your love. As unbelievably, wonderfully true as that is, we accept it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.